Uh, but so so Preston, and how do you pronounce this? Is it Pomacle? Pomacle. Pr- Preston Pomacle of Holmes Murphy. Appreciate you coming yes. on, man. Um, you have the distinction of being the most highly requested guest or recommended guest of, of anybody on the podcast so far. Two people have said you've got to <laughs> independently. I know, I know it's not that highly requested, but usually when some one person says, hey, you've got to talk to so-and-so, I listen. But two people independently have said you've got to talk to Preston. So I'm like, man, I've got to reach out to this guy. That just means see, two people are wrong, that but that's two okay. Pe- yeah, two people were completely incorrect, that's and I okay, should have never I'll, done that. But, I'll take it. But, hey, man, I do appreciate you coming on. Obviously, Absolutely. it's our first chance to meet each other, which is always – I think it's actually more more fun than somebody I sit down that I already know uh, because everything will be completely fresh in this discussion. And I'm anxious. If, if you are the most highly recommended person, I'm anxious to hear your perspective on self-funding. So I think it's going to be a good time. Man. Full disclosure to your listeners. We've never met before five minutes ago. Yeah. So no money was exchanged. Nothing like that. I'm not trying to hype you up, but a couple thousand, but that's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, what's a couple thousand it's amongst nothing. new friends. Right. Um, but I think that hopefully that speaks obviously to your reputation, man. And people think highly of you. And obviously maybe you have a unique voice in this world and can share some experiences and some wisdom. So I'm excited to hear that. Um, before we go into that, of course, you know, the podcast is self-funded with Spencer. That's what we talk about as the crux or the core of, of this uh, podcast. But I do want to get a chance to, to, to know you real quick, if you don't mind sharing some of your education history, your, your work history, family, if you'd like to share it as well. I like to get to know the person before sure. we talk, talk shop. First off, when you say you want to hear the voice, no pun intended, yeah. everyone says I do have a very unique voice. So we'll, we'll, we'll take that as uh, not voice and, and knowledge, but just voice and voice. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I'm a full Full lifelong Dallas, Texas area resident, uh, born in Denton, grew up in Louisville, uh, went to private school in Dallas, uh, commuted in, left that in middle school for sports, wanted to go back and be a fighting farmer. So to all you guys over at uh, one of our competitors that went to LHS, there we go. <laughs> uh, you know, We know who you are. Uh, but yeah, and ended up. Going to North Texas, played soccer there, did my undergrad and my MBA, came out of there in 93, undergrad, 94, okay. graduate school. Uh, What'd you study? Just business. Business. Yeah, okay. I did business, and then I did my MBA. I had, like all other brilliant young kids going to college, I had no idea what I wanted to sure. do other than hopefully make a difference and make some money while making a difference. Yes. Uh, was a soccer coach for a while along the way, just moonlighting before my children were old enough to play so what would you coach club level or club rec level, level? Yeah, okay club very level. cool uh-huh. what club was that for? uh dallas texans of the all texans clubs. okay yeah. yeah man yeah i know them well i, I shared with you played at texas lightning mm-hmm. grew up dallas texans houston texans the longhorns all those guys played against the dempseys and the with ugo and that that sort of thing so i didn't know that was part of your your cv was coaching uh, how long did you coach it was about 10 years okay about 10 years and then my when my oldest child was old enough to play which he's now 25 he was four at the time or about to be 25 my wife said it's time for you to invest in our own children mm-hmm. so let's do this and okay. so I kind of I kind of shifted that to my own children and their friends and friends of friends so we had a few teams and did quite well so yeah. it was fun well when you say moonlighting were you working in the benefits world and yes. also doing that at, so how many nights a week were we doing practice and games probably multiple right it was three to four nights a week unbelievable marketing tool you meet tons of parents sure are influential oh, yeah. and this and that so 
while it was great to help their children, selfishly, it was also good for me at the time. <laughs> Nothing wrong uh, with mutual No, benefit. it yeah, wasn't yeah, at all. Yeah. But but it, it's a passion, but it wasn't my life. And I ended up with three great boys, a beautiful wife, and had to take care of them and take care of responsibilities. So, right, so I get that, man. So I'm, I, I'm entering my foray into coaching. Uh, you four, U5 girls, go mermaids. Uh, All right. May I practice tonight? It was one of those things that I don't know if you, you were intentional in getting into soccer coaching. I was kind of a little reluctant, although I think deep down I probably knew I would enjoy it. Um, nobody volunteered, and so I was the dad that stepped up and said, yeah, I'll coach it, and ended up enjoying it immensely. So can I give yeah. you one piece of advice, oh, please, even though please. this is an insurance podcast? Yeah, please. You're the mermaids. Yeah. You're green mermaids. Green mermaids. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to wear a mermaid jersey. Be fair. That says coach on the back because oh. everybody can figure out you're not a four-year-old girl <laughs> on the team. We saw my coach, Spencer. Uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't be wearing that. No. Oh, I'll have to tell we my had wife some, about We had that. some rules when my <laughs> kids were young, and one of the rules was you can't lose to a team that the other team's coach is wearing the jersey, and it says coach on the back. Oh, man. We uh, know you're the coach. You I've, don't have to tell I've us. I've made my first mistake as a newbie coach, man. Okay. So. Well, fair, I feel like I've taken the coach <laughs> stance, too. I've got my arms behind my back walking the sideline. <laughs> I'm getting into it a little bit, but I think at the end of the day, I think it's – I enjoy it because I get to introduce my daughter to something that was a long li lifelong passion of mine and still is. We're watching the U.S. men's national team game tonight together, as a matter of fact. Uh, but it's it's been a fun additional hobby that I've picked up along the way outside of the insurance. Yeah, world. trivia question: How yeah. many kids on that roster tonight will have been raised or played through Dallas at some point in their career? So we got Pepe. Yep. McKinney. Yep. Acosta. Yep. Um. Richards, Chris Richards. Yep. Correct. Um, who am I missing? There, I think there might be one or two more. Shaq Moore. Shaq Moore. Yeah, I forgot about Shaq. Maybe Walker Zimmerman. Walker Zimmerman. Jeez, you're you're better than I am. I, uh, I feel like I failed my my trivia. Is that six? Right. Yeah, there might even be. I'm racking my brain. I think that's it. I was thinking there might be one more, but there's. Dallas has had an unbelievable I know. influence on the national team right well, now. Well, so, so, you know, I, I the only thing I envy about the situation now is we didn't have a pipeline of the pros when I when I played. It was club ball, and then hopefully you got a college scholarship, and then MLS didn't start to, what, 97 or some, something around there. So right. it really wasn't it wasn't part of your, your life. But anyways, not to digress too much in soccer, although I could talk soccer for an hour. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you indulging me for a minute, man. Um, but let's talk career-wise. When, when okay. Outside of the moonlighting and the coaching – Benefits. What was the start in benefits for you? So I started with the Aetna okay. back in 1993 as an intern in HR training and education. Okay. Working for Beth Ziegler, who is still running the service center for Aetna today over in Arlington. Uh, I spent about a year and a half in HR. They wanted to put me into a sales role. It didn't work out. Timing, that's back with group school and things, some weird things that the Generation Day doesn't understand. But group school got canceled, which was the training program. So they put me uh, in touch and basically landed me a position as an underwriter. Okay. So I was an underwriting for Aetna for about 18 months to two years and realized very quickly that Sales were the guys making all the money and getting all the glory. Uh -huh. And we were doing a whole lot of work and effort on the pricing and understanding and all that. Of Which products were you underwriting? Uh, everything. So okay. I was new business. So it was all everything from fully insured medical 
dental, self-funded medical dental, primarily that world. Anything from 50 lives, it was non-small, so 50 up to about 5,000, I believe, was the okay. cap. Okay. Mm -hmm. So underwriting, but you had this epiphany. I think I had a similar epiphany being in the finance department at Benefit Mall, um, paying those salespeople and going, huh, I'm, I'm – think I'm doing something wrong here. Mine maybe took me a little longer than it took you. It was about five years before I think I figured that out and got into sales. So you go, how does that uh, transition uh, work for you then? So I was with the Aetna for about five years. They, I was there when the Aetna U.S. Healthcare merger went down. Okay. And they came to Dallas with all the non-competes, single product clauses for providers. Sales were drying up. They were putting contracts in front of you, and I chose to not <clears throat> stay at Aetna, and I went to CNA. Okay. Stayed at CNA for about a year. They were, had a medical product. They exited the medical world, so I was two for two. Uh -huh. Went to a company called AmeriHealth, which is a Blue Cross of Pennsylvania uh, plan that was trying to break into Texas with some friends of mine out of Houston. Uh, spent about a year, year and a half there. And I left and went to uh, another broker in town. I spent, I opened that benefit shop. Uh, it's McGriff. I okay. opened that benefit shop. Stayed there about five years and then left to Holmes Murphy. And I've been at Holmes Murphy now for so 15, 16 years. About, I think 17, I think. Okay. I don't know, something. So, long time. So was it intentional to eventually gravitate towards uh, the benefits world or was there interest there? Or it just so happened that was an opportunity. How'd you get into it? I had no idea. Stumbled into it. Stumbled into yeah. it. They wanted to pay me at Aetna. I started into it. Sales were good. Mm -hmm. Income was good. Yeah. Lifestyle was good. Sporting events were fun. Like, hey, I want to do this. Was it? Did you find it difficult to juggle early on the the coaching plus the you know the nine to five job? I mean, was it a pretty stressful no. schedule to keep? Okay, I'm a numbers guy at heart, okay. so it's the underwriting world, the financial world is one that kind of doing my sleep per se. So fair enough, fair enough. So now we'll get into benefits, and obviously want to talk about you know the life in the benefits world. Um, after transitioning though into sales, did you? Like you, you mentioned the lifestyle, you mentioned that, that sort of thing. Obviously, income when you're in sales uh, goes up precipitously. But was it? Did you enjoy the actual work as much as well versus the underwriting? Was it a night and day? I, I love this business. Yeah, I, I truly underwriting and uh, having clients and explaining to them how risk works, what the moving levers are. That's great. But the true reward at the end is making an impact on someone's life, finding a program that changes someone's life, finding you know, something that helps them lose 50 pounds when they've tried 24 times, trying a new therapeutic solution that they hadn't thought about before as an employer and someone that's walked in pain for five years without surgery now is walking pain-free. Yeah, It's things like that that really keep, keep you energized. Sure, you know, The business is the business and it's always going to be there. But it's it's who can make a difference really in my eyes is where where you where you I don't know what's the right term. Um so I guess you get your satisfaction. I, I actually hundred percent appreciate that. I think 
you forget sometimes, like, oh, this is benefits, right, or this is insurance or whatever you want to label it as. You, you forget sometimes the people that are underneath it that are actually being impacted by the choices. And you're, you're steering strategy, right? So ultimately, you're the one uh, advising these employers on what to do. And, and ultimately, that does have a downstream impact on the individual. So I'm sure you've seen a number of instances over the years where you actually did something that perhaps you recommended or suggested ultimately improved an individual's life, which I think we need not forget that sometimes. Absolutely. Um, insurance by nature is boring. <laughs> I agree with you there. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a harsh reality that everybody needs it. Yeah. But I will also say that as a society, we become less healthy, mm -hmm. less active, more risk tolerant in our own behaviors then it's going to drive up cost. Yeah. So people just need to be aware of that. Well, that, you know, and, but through the, through the context of insurance or through the context of being a consultant, do you think you have enough connection point to the person, right? Like, cause we're talking about individuals and some of the behaviors and choices they're making. You're one, two, three, perhaps steps removed. You know, is it, is it difficult to get downstream and get some of that messaging and some of the behavioral changes to the actual person? Is it hard sometimes to get that? The most important player in the entire healthcare realm is the employer. The employer controls the checkbook. Mm -hmm. So if an employer is paying 80% of the cost of healthcare and the employee is paying 20% of the cost of healthcare, whether it's through premiums, deductibles, coinsurance, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. In the end, your employer is paying the majority of your healthcare. If that employer feels like they want to invest in their employees and make a difference, it's very easy to get downstream to the employees and help them implement programs and solutions that have better outcomes. Okay. If the employer takes a stance of, it's none of my business, what my employees do, they do, I pay my insurance and let it go, mm -hmm. then in that instance, it's very hard. Um, and it's kind of like property casualty. Every property casualty company or risk management company or whatever or company has some type of a risk strategy in place. Okay. And they have to follow safety. They have to follow protocols. You, you have to. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at OSHA. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to healthcare and benefits, we can let people just run to the clear boo yonder as wild as they want to be <laughs> looking for every provider or anything they want to do with no clear definition. So I, I put the onus on the employer at the end of the day and how engaged that employer wants to be. Well, so what are the inherent challenges in the property casualty world versus the benefits world of that having to steer clear of um, perhaps telling people what to do. I think you mentioned that when we were talking earlier. You, you, you want to avoid the semblance of controlling a person's life and controlling their behavior, but ultimately, especially in the self-funded world or even in the fully insured world, uh, one individual's choices can perhaps impact the overall experience of the whole plan, costs go up, things like that. So why is there a disconnect in benefits that perhaps doesn't exist from a risk management standpoint in PNC? I think people feel like if it's at work, you have the right to have some influence over what I do. Okay. So for instance, uh, I am a construction worker. I'm required to wear a hard hat. 
I go up on a ledge, I'm required to wear a safety harness. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever they make you do, they make you do. But then I leave and I go home and I don't ever do any exercise. Or I smoke. Or I just have a hereditary issue that I'm at higher risk. Sure. But I don't want to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm at higher risk and I don't even know about it because I haven't been to the doctor in four years. So in that stance, where does the employer feel like they belong? Some employers feel like I want my employees to know I'm engaged. I want them to know I care for them and I'm going to incentivize or penalize or however you want to word it. You know, I always laugh. Someone said, I'm going to incense you with a carrot, but I'm going to freeze it. So if you don't bite it, I'm going to hit you with it. (laughs) Either way, I'm going to get the 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 same outcome with the frozen carrot. Yeah. Um, So it, it just depends on the employer, but you've, an engaged employer is going to have better outcomes, meaning lower insurance cost over time, excuse me, because of their engagement. Well, do you think, what is your role in your mind of the consultant to help impact that change through the employer channel? How much do you feel like you actually get to impact that? I feel like we, I personally get to impact it quite a bit because it seems to me as a lot of my employers that have gravitated towards me as a consultant or me helping them or, or whatever, a lot of what I talk about up front in that um, dating period, you know, while we're trying sure. to figure out are we going to be client-customer relationship, I talk a lot about those things. So if it resonates, then I think I have a much better chance of being hired. If it doesn't resonate, they might say, he, great guy, nice guy, great ideas, but I don't want any of that. I want what the other guy has. Yeah. So I think if someone chooses me and their world, a lot of times they're they're predetermined already that we want to head down some of those paths. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, so uh, I, you know, I want to get us back on track, right? And I really appreciate uh, your time here. Sure. I do want to ask a question though, because I, I actually had somebody pose this to me the other day on a consulting call. I said, Hey, well, what what is what has happened? pre-ACA and post-ACA in terms of the stop-loss and self-funded world. And I had to admit that I really only entered the self-funded world after the ACA uh, came out. So as somebody that's you know spent some time before and after and been in the industry so, um, so intensely within the consulting industry, how has that changed the, your messaging? How has it changed your strategy in terms of self-funded clients? So first off, in theory, self-funding pre-ACA and post-ACA really hasn't changed. Okay. Self-funding is a mechanism to fund your health insurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can have the exact same thing for the most part, fully insured, except fully insured, you have less product um, creativity, mm-hmm. right? You're going to be standard plans. You're going to have some higher premium taxes. You're going to have some state mandates Mm -hmm. where you go self-funded. You're going to be governed by ERISA and a few other things. But all in all, risk is risk. Your claims do not change when you go from fully insured to self-funded. By and large, if you've got an $800,000 hemophiliac fully insured, you got an $800,000 hemophiliac self-funded. Now, that's the risk side of it. Mm -hmm. 
pre-ACA, you were able to put lifetime limits on a plan. Mm -hmm. So stop loss might have a $1 million lifetime yep. cap or annual cap to three. So that has changed some of the pricing of stop loss because the risk mm -hmm. that's now inherent that you could limit before, but ACA just added more risk. It didn't really change the funding mechanism sure. of stop loss or no stop loss. You know, it took out some of your limits on daily limits and things like that. But again, that's just affecting benefits and those benefits are claims and those claims are what produce your cost. Sure. So, you know, believe it or not, I don't think ACA had a massive influence on the self-funded world other than it had a massive influence on some of the risk, yeah. which the self-funded world bared. But guess what? The fully insured world's bearing it too. Sure. Sure. So, well, do you ever envision uh, an imposition on lifetime maximums coming back into place, or once that's been erased, it's it is what it is and it's gone? Because I, I the reason I ask, right, coming from the stop loss world, is you we've talked uh, uh, to a number of folks that talk about drugs coming down the pike that are a couple million dollars uh, per per treatment, um, things like that, where catastrophic claims and million dollar claims, the frequency as well as the severity of those claims have gone up significantly. So, do you think there could be a, a situation where there's enough pressure applied by the insurance industry to reintroduce some sort of cap like that? I don't think we'll see it. In my lifetime. Okay. Uh, and I'll s preface my lifetime as I've got 10 to 12 years in this industry. Ah, left. okay. Uh, I, I hope you weren't saying 10 to 12 on this earth. I'm no, like, no, no, you no, got much no. longer than in that. The, in yeah. this industry. Okay. Uh, and, and here's why. I can remember early days in this business, and unfortunately, sometimes our business is a morbid business, mm -hmm. meaning I have a terrible renewal. Somebody passes away. That terrible renewal just turned a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. um, so from that standpoint, I, I don't like, that's the one thing I don't like about this business. Um, but you take this business and you take a premature baby 25 years ago that's born one pound or whatever the weight is, the opportunity for that baby to live and have quality of life was so different then than it is today. Mm -hmm. Today, it's almost commonplace that they expect that baby to have a full sure. yeah. recovery through the NICU and into the world. And by the time they're two and they go through whatever development they need to, again, I'm not a clinician, I just see the claims dollars, that baby's going to have a normal life. Yeah. What's better than that? Yeah. So I don't think you can ever put a cap on something that is that great of opportunity. Okay. Um, so I, as much as I'd like to see it from my financial side, sure. yeah. the moral, ethical, and personal side of me feels like that will never come. Now, I'd love to see some of these million dollar blockbuster drugs, you know, that are coming in now, your, your gene therapy, you know, your crazy things that are changing the world. Would I love to see them more affordable? Absolutely. Would I love to see them in developed countries, all with similar pricing? So I can't go to Canada and get it 60% less 
than I can get it in America. Yeah. You know, that's some of the things that I'd like to see a little more normalized. Okay. But that's not under my domain. Well, but see that that type of ingenuity and innovation in the United States is what we've we've been known for, right? I mean, it's something that we pride ourselves on. But I think you're right. I, I made the mistake one time digging into a stop loss case that I was trying to sell, looking at some case management notes and seeing a, a really just horrible kind of accident that happened to a family in the car accident. And some of the and it's like you forget sometimes that the you you, you separate the risk because you're trying to write the numbers and sell the case. You forget the underlying people that are impacted. So it's right. You've got to sometimes wear multiple hats and think about moral, ethical, you know, the human element versus the financial element, which is the just the risk assessment of the actual numbers. Um, and that's why in our business, you know, I laugh because people throw the term around broker consultant. Mm -hmm. It's interchangeable. We all have a group, same exact license. Some of us have a counselor's license too. But in the end, you have to have the group one license that – makes you a consultant, makes you a broker, whatever. But I, I often talk about the consulting side is the side with the human element that's talking about all these things. Mm -hmm. And then the broker side is the one at the end that just has to get a deal cut. Sure. You know. So. That's fair enough. Yeah, I've, I've had some jokes uh, with some f folks on here about whether or not the broker terminology is somewhat outdated or whether or not you're trying to shed your skin of that that label anymore because it was this semblance that a broker was shopping insurance and that's kind of where the, the start and end of their role was. So I, I think, I, do you, if you had to refer to yourself, would it be consultant, broker, consult, doesn't matter? I use them interchangeably okay. Okay. and don't care. Fair enough, right? Some people get so aff affix uh, fixated on labels. So what, you know, we're talking shifts and we're kind of talking future here. What, like, let's talk about shifts in the self-funded space, whether or not it has anything to do with ACA, just in recent years, what changes do you think you're seeing in the space? You know, one of the ones that I see commonly is a smaller groups interested or some more solutions in that space. But what are you seeing? So there's a couple things. First off, smaller groups are coming downstream to get into self-funded or level funding, which some of the carriers yeah. are calling it, but it's all a self-funded chassis. I think your larger employers are more and more looking at outside solutions mm -hmm. that they could bolt on to their large self-funded plan to make them more um, make them more efficient and more attractive. And I'll, and I'll start with the smaller plans. Okay. And why, why have you seen a push for self-funding to come down into the smaller space? And I'm level funding at the carriers now will go 20 to 50 lives. Mm -hmm. Well, first off, everyone has to understand whether you're 50 lives fully insured or you're 50 lives level funded, you're in a risk pool. Mm -hmm. Okay? So what you do to affect your health and everybody else in that risk pool does is really what's going to affect your future cost. So let's talk about 50 lives. Let me, let me say one other thing. Okay. And you may or may not know this, but when the ACA came out, there were underwriting decrements that were used from in the rating structure. So if you took a pre-ACA, if you took a, I'm going to say an 18-year-old kid, I don't know the exact age, an 18-year-old kid to a 65-year-old person, and I'm going to use manual rates, okay. was filed with the state on the fully insured side. The carriers were allowed to have a nine times factor. Okay. So that means if for plan A, <coughs> for plan A, if my lowest rate was $100, my mm -hmm. 
My 64-year-old, the highest rate could be $900. Mm-hmm. That was pre-ACA. When ACA came in, they made a they made law a three times factor. Okay. So if I've got this whole myriad of people and I'm getting a billion dollars, and I got some 18-year-olds at 100, and I got some 19-year-olds at or 65-year-olds at 900, I had to blend it all together mm-hmm. and figure out what my new rate structure is. Okay. So let's say our new rate structure goes from 200 to 600 because mm-hmm. they put a three times yeah. factor on yeah. it. So now you take a 20-year-old, a 20-life company, and you do the demographics, and they were young. They got hammered sure. by the new blending because a lot of their people went from $100 a month to 200 These 900s dropped to 600 You blend it out. You're still going to have the same number, but your younger groups paying more. paid more. Yeah. Your older population and your older groups ended up paying less. Okay. So in that world, who was happy? <laughs> the older population. The sure. older population, the older risk, people that had higher claims, but it's all manually rated and manually renewed. Okay. So now take your group of 30 lives that used to pay on average $400 per employee per month for everything. And all of a sudden they're paying 600. They're looking for what can I do? Yeah. I'm going to give the industry credit. The carriers weren't the first ones to do level funding. Some TPAs got some stop loss in. Okay. And guess what happens when you go self-funded at a small group standpoint? You can underwrite. Okay. So I could take these 30 people, run them through a system, and I could underwrite it, where all your fully insured could only run it through the system. So let's say we ran it through the system fully insured and the rates were here and we ran it through the self-funded system and the rates were here. That self-funded underwriter could discount at 20 points okay? because he feels like that risk is much better. Guess what? They're getting claims runs from the fully insured groups. Okay. So the claims run says I have 400,000 in premium, 200,000 in claims. The self-funded underwriter go, I'll take a gamble on that. So they started skimming risk. Ah. So the insurance companies were losing really good risk to these smaller self-funded players hopping in with level-funded, quote-unquote, look-alike plans. Gotcha. Hence, the carriers then realized that this risk was leaving. Mm -hmm. So they started, all right, you're fully insured, but if you run at a certain level, we'll give you a self-funded option renewal. Okay. If you run bad, you're stuck fully insured. Gotcha. So that's where that whole thing generated from. It started ACA with the changes in the factors. And then someone realized real quick, we can cherry pick risk. Self-funded world started grabbing risk. The major care is like, oh, I don't like that. Yeah. So they combat it. So I have no problem with it. It, Everything has its place. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's been good for the markets, especially your groups that, you know, are running well. Well, I, you know, I, I think maybe everything's old is new again. You know, the last couple of years, I hear kind of a similar story where there new solutions are coming out in the smaller and smaller segment. I mean, I've I've heard level funding down to like five lives uh, nowadays, which I don't know the whole arrangement, but some people are interested in it. Um, but you know, I, it's interesting to understand the the impetus for that to happen in the first place. How long did it take the carriers to adapt? Was it a couple couple renewals before they figured it I, out? I think it was about two renewals. Okay. 
And so, yeah, so now, you know, you, you know your AFAs, you know your signal level funding. You know, there's a couple, a bunch of carrier solutions out there. But you do see uh, maybe a renewed appetite for risk in that smaller size segment for a quote-unquote unbundled but prepackaged, if you will, still level-funded solution where there's a, a TPA and a stop-loss carrier mm-hmm. and a PBM. Um, and, you know, of course, the solutions out there that are getting, getting data, the rover analytics and the Veracais of the world that are helping get data. I, I think that's a good thing. I think the more exposure to the actual claims drivers and the risk um, is good for everybody because I – if we can get them self-funded or if we can get them in some semblance of self-funding, then you can look under the hood, actually start making uh, change, right? Well, and, and that's you, – you talk about looking under the hood. It, it's very important that employers understand insurance is expensive. Mm-hmm. There's no magic bullet, okay? So you can go into reference-based pricing and you can change contractual language and, and you can save – you can take a bite of the apple off the top and save that money. But more importantly is, I think employers really, and this is goes down to small groups, right? doesn't matter, especially if a small group hops in another, a captive or a small risk pool where they're all doing the same thing. We have to affect risk. And when I started as an underwriter, this is a question, you'd, you're not going to really answer this, we'll ask anyway. Okay. When I started as an underwriter 23, five years ago, whatever it was, what do you think the average diabetic rate was in an insured population of a group? The percentages that were uh, So if I had 100 people in a group, what percentage were going to be diabetic? Oh, let me guess. 5%. 3 to 4. 3 to 4. Okay. Went too far off. Okay. So that's 25 years ago. Today, it's probably 12 to 13. Okay. And I've seen statistics that by, you know, 2025, we could be pushing 20%. Okay. So in that theory, you have 100 people. Three were diabetic. And let's just say that diabetic was costing $10,000 25 years ago. So per 100 people, that's $30,000. Today, we have, let's just say, 12 people. And those 12 people are averaging $21,000 a year, somewhere in that range. Okay. So inflation's gone from trend mm-hmm. has gone from 10 to 21,000. Okay. But my utilization's gone from 3 to 12. Yep. So where I had $30,000 before, today I now have 12 times 21,000. Which is what, two forty, two hundred fifty-two thousand yeah. dollars in my country boy math. I think that's right. Yeah. So that's eight times. Yeah. So everyone harps on trend, trend, trend mm-hmm. and medical inflation. Where I go back and say if we just produce less disease, every employer in town would be ecstatic. Yeah. With three percent diabetic rates mm-hmm. and a Well, I can't tell you how many times I'd have um I don't want to call them arguments, but negotiations with consultants about stop loss premium, and you know you're hammering two to three, four, five percent on premium, and that's there's a there was a fixation on the fixed costs. I think I made a video about this once because you get frustrated with there's a, a fixation of the fixed cost component because there's this presumption that you can actually impact that through negotiations, and that's part of your job, of course. But like you mentioned earlier, 
those costs are a function of the actual claims themselves. They're, that's driving the risk. If Would you rather focus on 10 to 15% of the cost that's fixed and reduce that by 5%, or would you rather focus on 60% of the cost and reduce that by 5 or 10%? It's exactly you know, a Correct. different way of saying the exact same thing that you're saying, mm-hmm. but I saw it from the perspective of somebody selling the insurance. It's like, if you would just reduce this pool, the premiums would obviously come down as a function well, and, of that. And it's important to focus on the fixed costs. Don't get me wrong. I mean, but the lion's share are claims, yeah. and that's where you, that's where the impetus should be. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, can we shift the uh, movement for uh, real quick to PBMs? Because uh, that's your a podcast. We can go hey, man. Go. Well, I want to make sure. Yeah, you're okay with it. You're my guest. Um, but PBMs, I do want to talk about your perspective on that. Not necessarily who they, you know, an employer should be working with, but maybe the type of PBM or what, what should you be looking out for? Um, because the PBM sometimes is, is thought of as a dirty world, if you will, um, nowadays. So, so what do we need to know there? I thought maybe that's a podcast by itself, right? It is. It's, it's, it's actually two podcasts <laughs> yeah. by itself. Yeah. Uh, but but let, let me, let me go backwards. Give me the short version. Let me right go backwards and say, first off, in the world of a, Healthcare broker, healthcare consultant, what have you. I think PBMs have, or the PBM space, the pharmacy space, whatever you want to call it, I think it's gone to a place where you truly need a pair of technical specialty eyes okay. in that world. So think of yourself as a general practitioner, and all of a sudden someone needs brain surgery. You can help diagnose it. You can know there's a tumor. You can know all this. But when someone gets in, yeah, you need a specialist. Um, and the world, the reason I say you need a specialist is that world is so, it's supposedly transparent, <laughs> but it's milk. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the important things are going to be, obviously everyone harps on rebates, right? I want my rebates. I want, there's so much more to a PBM than rebates. Um, you know, their clinical programs, their, the way they're writing the definitions of drugs, the way they're writing definitions of generic versus brand, the way they're doing multi-source versus single source. There's, there's a million different things. So in that world, uh, I'm fortunate enough that I have a couple partners that I go to with all of my clients and make sure that their contracts are not only buttoned up financially and financially transparently, mm-hmm but also from a language and a terminology standpoint and an audit standpoint and all those things mm-hmm. to me are very, very important. Um, you know, there's the, the prescription world's extremely important. I mean, it's what's changing lives today. Yeah. And I mean, take um, hep C, mm-hmm. right? I mean, how many people live with hepatitis and had $50,000 of claims a year, and I don't have it. I don't pretend to understand how they lived, but I heard it affected their life. You know, out comes the three or four wonder drugs about five years ago, and for 100000 bucks a piece, 75000 bucks a piece, you're cured yeah. in certain circumstances. So I think that's important. Do I wish we could have done it for less than that? Yes. Opportunity cost in the future, sure. we're still saving money. But if you pay $75,000 and all of a sudden there's a $10,000 rebate or something that runs back through 
the PBM that runs to you runs here, runs there. Mm -hmm. I would so much rather just see, give everybody a price, and then we decide do we want to buy that from you or do we want to buy it from somebody else. Yep. But well, isn't that the hardest thing in, in our healthcare space is what is the actual price, whether it's an RX uh, or a medical claim? It seems that the you mentioned though it's as opaque as milk or as transparent as milk. That's part of the problem is that there is a lack of transparency in what a member utilizing services ahead of time necessarily understands about what this would cost the plan, let alone themselves. So if you take our industry and, and my boss, who's our president, Dan Bishop, he, he refers back to a, it's an article called the Global Simplicity Index. And basically it's something that rates all the companies, large companies, all the industries basically in the world and what have you, and what's easy to maneuver and what's not, mm -hmm. you know, i.e. You know, Southwest Airlines is at the top, ding, you push a button and away you go. Yeah. But, you know, healthcare <laughs> is at the bottom. Of course it is, yeah. Health insurance companies are at the bottom. And our problem, I think, is we are, we have the, the some of the greatest capabilities in the world, mm -hmm. but people don't know how to get to them or don't have access to them or go the wrong way. Yeah. You know, if I, I laugh at people all the time because I say, hey, maybe we should have somebody drive 20 miles to do this surgery because it's a higher quality, better outcomes facility, statistically speaking. And the employer's like, they're not going to drive 20 miles to go have that done. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but he drives 50 miles on Saturday to play golf. Yeah. So. Is it that too much to ask? Yeah, is it that? Or yeah. you turn around and say, how much research did somebody do on this physician or that physician? Mm -hmm. And you'll be like, oh, well, my neighbor said they were good. Yeah. But yet, if they were going to go buy a TV, they'd spend three days <laughs> looking at everywhere yeah. the quality is, what's the best one, and then they're going to look at 22 places that's going to be the cheapest place to go buy that exact TV that I want. Yeah. You know, so there are some some things out there that have helped transparency, you know, the the compass of lights of the mm -hmm. world, the, oof, there's Health Advocate, there's Castlight, you know, there's some great programs that have helped that. But I, I just wish it was a little simpler. Well, that's just it, right? The rub is really in the coordination of the simplicity of the actual one, not just the delivery, but the choice. Like as a member, what do I do in, in advance to do that research that you just described? Because I can go on Best Buy and Amazon and I can compare those models and I have all the specifications and the metrics that I need to make a choice. But then let's say I need a knee, knee surgery and I'm uh, just a person that's on the plan that has no idea where to go. Like that's a that's a much more complicated uh I think, avenue to navigate, and people don't know how, so maybe they just go, well, I don't know how, so I'll ask my buddy. Uh, who and and that's where I think the insurance world needs to do a better job. Okay. But unfortunately, they have large networks, mm -hmm. and if you had a scheduled surgery at one place, and you as the insurance company moved it from that place to another place... Are you going to upset one of your major providers? So I, I think they have to walk, or I don't think, I know they have sure. to walk a fine line. And that's where the outside worlds come up with a business case to, for these products. 
and I think they're important. So, Well, and so I think that's a nice segue into the next question is in the innovation side, right? We're talking about simplicity. How do you make it easier for a member to make choices? What else are you seeing out there? Point solutions, you know, kind of new solutions out on the market that you like, that you've latched onto, that you believe in. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Um, there, there's some some really unique programs coming in right now, point solutions. Um, that And if, if you go historically speaking, people were talking about Naturally Slim Wonder Health, okay. uh, Real Appeal, these are weight loss, metabolic syndrome programs. Okay. Your Lavongos, your Canaks for uh, the diabetic type deal. You got Joyages and a few things for some other lifestyle. There are some a few new programs that are uh, that I'm starting to see pop up out there. We're playing with one right now that uh, will be a a breast examination that could be done on site without radiation okay. and out the, without the need of a mobile mammography unit. Okay. So okay. mammograms are great. They serve a place. We love them. They're very good for early detection along with the right exam and everything that comes with it. Okay. But the average self-funded employer, and I'm assuming fully insured too, their mammogram compliance is about 45%. Okay. So what are we doing with the other 55%? We're just letting them, leaving it up to time, hope, and chance. Yep. Similar to 15 years ago when biometric screenings first came into the scene. And everyone's like, well, my plan pays 100%. You can go to the doctor. We do this. Mm -hmm. And you look at it, and only 35% of our population is going to the doctor a year. You bring a screening. You make it convenient. You make it on site. You get their blood. You're in and out in 30 minutes. Employers latched onto that. So I think the the breast screening initiative that we're we're playing with right now is is a really good one. Uh, We're looking at a large claim services performed review that we'll see where that goes, meaning that a lot of your large claims out there just need a second set of eyes to make sure is what was billed, was it accurate? Yeah. And so there's there's an integrity group out there that's they're doing nothing with uh, hospital contracts. They don't care what your provider contract and what all that is. They're just going back more in is what was billed exactly what was provided for mm-hmm. and doing kind of a forensic audit because if you're in the hospital for 50 days, 100 days, you could have 2,000 pages of hospital bills. Mm-hmm. Unless someone really gets in line by line with expertise, it's hard for anyone to review that. So you know, I'm not saying there's any purposeful wrongdoings, but there's a lot of room for miscoding, misbilling, and things like that. So sure. That's two areas we're playing in now. Well, yeah. So they say, what do they say? Never uh, ascribe malice to something where um, incompetence could could yeah. suffice, right? So it's not necessarily fraud, waste, or abuse. It could just simply be, you know, an error, Accident. uh, accidents, right? Yeah. Um, but so you know, that's kind of the the back end of that. Do you see, you know, right? You, you mentioned earlier, there's no silver bullet, but do you see anything perhaps behaviorally impacting people's choice or lifestyles or anything like that? healthy population uh, versus an unhealthy population. How do you drive people towards healthier choices? 
Uh, do you think the insurance industry even necessarily plays a role in that, or is that down to the individual? I guess is a, a bigger question. Again, that goes back to my comment earlier in regards to the employer. Yeah. Uh, if the employer feels like they have a right to help influence some of the employee's behavior because they're the ones with the checkbook, mm -hmm. then yes. So, for example, uh, Holmes Murphy, my employer, pays a major part of my insurance. Mm -hmm. So if Holmes Murphy says, Preston, you need to get an exam this year mm -hmm. or it's going to cost you money, I feel like it's their right. So I'm going to go get my exam Fair enough. because they're the ones paying my insurance. Mm -hmm. So I, I have no problem with that. Yeah. Uh, and I subscribe to that world. Mm -hmm. So go back to, do I have the right to tell an employee to live healthier, be healthier? That's philosophically, I, I can't say it fits every client. Yeah. Well, that's right. And do you think there's um, a role for a wellness type solution in, involved in that sort of lexicon of all the solutions that are there? Do you think wellness has a role to play. I mean, I know, I know some, when wellness came on the market, it seemed like it was this exciting mm -hmm. new toy. And then you sort of unpacked it and whether or not it's actually getting participation and things like that. So you're going to laugh. I really don't like the term. wellness. okay. What do you, I like, to the, it as? I like the tone, the term of managing risk. Okay. Now, if I need a wellness platform or a portal to measure all the different activities of my risk management of my health plan, then I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I need it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be my wellness portal that manages, I'd almost call it a risk portal. Okay. Right? Because okay. did you get your screening done? If you got your screening done, did you do this? Did you, whatever is in there, I think is important. The whole world of wellness and just saying, hey, let's all go walk to walk. We know it's going to make us healthier, but if we reward walking, we're going to end up rewarding the people that are already walking <laughs> exactly. and running marathons. Yeah. Yeah. And what's crazy is when you do the, you look at the data, a third of the population, this is, let's just break our population into thirds. Okay. We're going to say lean, healthy weight, average weight, obese. And that lean, healthy weight that you look and you think everything's great, mm -hmm. probably 20, 25% of that population is at risk. Okay. That's why you'll hear someone say, oh, my God, my neighbor had a heart attack, died, and he was the picture of health. Yep. He ran every day. He ate salad. He did this. <laughs> and I'm drinking beer. Yeah. Well, from a hereditary standpoint or something, something was going on with that person. Mm -hmm. And wellness doesn't find it. Risk management finds it. Okay. So just walking doesn't find it. Now let's reverse courses and let's go down to the lower section that was obese. And clinically obese doesn't mean you're, you look terrible because we know clinically obese has a whole different definition than what our eye test does. Okay. 20, 25% of that population, their bodies are running like well-oiled Ferraris. Mm -hmm. So they can go walk all you want them to, but it's not going to help them or hurt them because they're already, you know, I hate to say it, 
it was told to me one day, you know, that's the population God must love most because they don't do anything <laughs> and there's no problems, you know? Yeah. And I just kind of laughed at it. But I was like, it's eh, a good point. Yeah, yeah. You know, you hear about the person that's 102, smoked a pack a day, drank every day, doesn't do anything right, never walked. There's no scientific answer for that other than God made them very well. Yeah. I don't know what else to say yeah, to that. Yeah, so sure. it's, but there's a big place for the risk management side, okay. which I take all the wellness vendors and I would class them at some level of risk management. Fair enough. And then I would take the platforms and say, we need some platform that can help us manage and keep track of all this because if you don't, it'll fall apart. Fair enough. Okay, that's cool. Um, I just like that there, there's obviously multiple ends of the spectrum in which you can impact, whether it's the beginning, whether it's during the actual claims consumption, like you said, whether it's afterwards and, and, and looking over those claims and auditing them and making sure. I think every one of them has their place, but like you said, there is not a singular solution that's going to fix no. everything, um, which is fair enough. But So let's talk big picture. We drilled down very deep. Now let's pull it back and say big picture, industry future, you know, what do you think? You said you got 10 to 12 years left in this industry. What do you think that next 10 to 12 years might look like? This is your crystal ball moment. Um, first off, you hear a lot about Medicare for all, single payer system. Yeah, Federal yeah. government's taking it all over. I don't think that's the answer. Uh, I don't think that's the answer because, number one, Medicare's run pretty inefficiently. If you just read all the news of all the scandals and billing fraud and whatever, mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, two, prior to ACA, and I don't have the dates in front of me, but Medicare was going to be insolvent at a certain date. I think it was 2018, 19. Okay. ACA put some money, moved some doctor cuts, et cetera, that extended it out. But financially, I'm not planning on Medicare being available when I turn 65. Okay. And I'm 50. Okay. I hope it is, but I'm not sure financially that Medicare will be there. Okay. Um, so that's one thing. Two, I don't think they're prepared to run it, which means if, if it was Medicare for all or single-payer system, that just means the insurance carriers are going to have to be involved somehow. Mm -hmm. And think about all those dollars that today are running America in self-funded systems that now would shift and end up being called some type of a tax, a fee, whatever. I just think the employer market can run it more efficiently okay. than it could the other way. Okay. Uh, even with our pitfalls, I think we'll see some regulation somewhere in the pharmacy world. Okay that brings some type of cost containment in, but still allows them to make the money they deserve to make for breakthrough technologies mm -hmm. and drugs. Mm -hmm. Whether that's government starts paying part of that through a, a fee or a tax or whatever. But I, I think it's not sustainable for employers to end up with million dollar drugs on the standard plan. It's just not sustainable. So I think there needs to be something in that world. I don't know what it looks like, but, but grant us some type of um, cost share with it, you know, like we do today with end stage renal, right? Mm -hmm. 
someone today self-funded your in-stage renal, certain amount of months, that person falls back to the federal government for support. Okay, fair enough. So yeah. let's yeah, say something like that. Something like that. What, what about, um, what role, or do you think the transparency in, in hospital pricing, do you think that ends up going anywhere ultimately? I mean, do you think that's somewhat of a window dressing for the solution, or do we actually get more transparency there? I think it's coming. Okay. And I think it's coming because it's already here in roundabout ways. So you have these vendors, like I talk about a compass or a cast yeah. or whatever, that are buying billions of records and they're reverse engineering back into the cost anyway. Uh, so you know, why not just say, and let's use Medicare as the base, I've got a network that these doctors agree they're going to take Medicare plus 50. Okay. You want a broader network? I got more doctors that'll go in at Medicare 70. Mm -hmm. You want an even broader network? We'll go in more at Medicare plus 200. Yeah, yeah. Now you as an employer can pick and you can budget and you can know. Mm -hmm. If my risk changes and I have more expensive procedures in those hospitals, my costs are going to go up but they're only going to go up by utilization and risk because my kind of quote unquote known pricing. Yeah. And, and I will say this, and this is probably the most negative thing that I'll <laughs> say today about the system is give me a large employer. You make, you name one. I'm not naming one. You name a large employer. Um, let's go with Coca-Cola. All right. So Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola uses ABC company as their, Carrier and mm. network. Okay. Coca-Cola spends, make up a number, $100 million yeah. a year on healthcare. Okay? In that instance, if the insurance company negotiates a new contract with a hospital, and that hospital is going to get, our $100 million is going to go to $110 million. Mm -hmm. Coca-Cola had no say-so, no wherewithal, no understanding, and that pricing structure just changed. Yeah. Explain to me anything else in Coca-Cola's business model that could take an increase that they would not have the right to say yes or no on. Yeah. And they would not understand what's happening. You wouldn't find it. Yeah. You wouldn't find it. And so for me, I feel like that transparency will come because I end up thinking the consumer, the employer, and everybody are going to demand it. Well, I think, yeah, if you give the people the right tools, most of the time they'll make the right decisions, at least in my opinion. Maybe I'm optimistic about people, but um, most of the time, like we said, there's not the right tools at their disposal for them to make an educated decision. So they end up just being it's a kind of a shot in the dark whether or not they make the right choice. Right. Um, so wrap, let's wrap it up, man. I know I want to get you on your way. Uh, we talked for an hour and I really appreciate it. I think we probably could we go for another hour. But. So kind of parting shots, man. What, what, if anybody listened to this through, through the whole thing, uh, which, you know, you'd be surprised there are quite a few folks that actually do. Um, what do you want to leave the listeners with, man? Uh, you know, what, what I would leave the listeners with is a couple of things. First off, as you go through everything and we talk about everything we've talked about, there's no such thing as bad risk mm -hmm. and there's no such thing as a bad group. 
there's underfunded risk and underfunded groups. Okay. So if I have a $10,000 claim or I have a million dollar claim and someone says, well, which one's worse risk? Well, it depends. If my $10,000 claim has $10,000 of premium, not very good. If my million dollar claim had 2 million in premium, I'll take that. Yeah. So that's one thing that a lot of people think is you know, this, this group's better than that group or whatever. Yeah, they might run more efficiently, but it's about how is something priced and is it priced appropriately. Okay. Another thing that I always talk to people about, bigger's not better. Okay. Better's better. So I have employers all the time tell me we're 400. If we could just get to 1,000, yeah. then we get a price break. <laughs> Healthcare is not a commodity. Yeah. So going from 400 people to 1,000 people is not going to make you run more efficiently. It's not going to save you money. Matter of fact, what if when you gain those 600 lives, you added three hemophiliacs that you can't get stop loss on? Mm -hmm. It may cost you a lot of money. Yeah. So I always caution people two things. One's about, they ask me, is my risk bad? Excuse me. No, there's no such thing as bad risk. It's just underfunded risk. Mm -hmm. And then two, if I get bigger, am I going to? No, you're not going to be better. So okay. from that standpoint, I like to make that point. Another point I'd like to make is there's a lot of people out there doing good. Yeah. There's a lot of people that care. There's a lot of people that are bringing point solutions or advocacy solutions or even the carriers. I know a lot of my good friends are there and they... They absolutely want what's mm -hmm. best for the clients and the people. It just, I think it's such a big industry and there's so much money in it that there's a lot of outside influences that come into play sure. that guys like me will never have any bearing over. So just keep trying to affect what you can affect. I agree with you, man. You know, we'll carve out our small little space if we impact the, this world, and that's my hope as well. I know I can't change the whole thing, but if I play a, a small, hope, but hopefully impactful role, I, I feel like I've done done my part. So where should people, where's the best place to get a hold of you? LinkedIn or? Um, uh, people can find me through LinkedIn or okay. on the Holmes Murphy website. I'm, you don't have to give your contact no, information now because you'll I'm, be you know, no, I'm 50 years old, and I'm not the tech-savvy guy that I should be. Okay. So I need to um, I need to do a little bit more with LinkedIn, et cetera. So my profile is probably 18 years old. <laughs> but you know, but hey, you were an all, early adopter back then. If, so. if somebody wants to find me, I'm not, I'm not that hard to. Fair enough. I'm not that hard to find, and uh, you know, COVID's made everybody change the way we work. Sure. But by and large, you know, it's pretty easy to get hold of me. Well, man, I really do appreciate it. Thank you for, we, we spent about an hour and 10 minutes talking, man. Wow. So really, yeah, believe it or not, that was uh, maybe the longest podcast, but like I said, we probably could have kept going. So thank you for taking a leap of faith. I know we didn't know each other beforehand, but I really enjoyed the time and uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again soon. Cheers. Thanks, man. Thank you. Bye.